also I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Things in the air, Kristen. Yeah. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerler. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we're in the weirdest timeline. Uh, I am your host, Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hi, Karen. Hello. How are you doing right now? You Other know, than being tired, we're always tired. We are always tired, and you know, I'm I'm hanging in there. I'm I will survive. <laughs> as as will we all. So we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. We, of course, were on uh, a brief break last week. Um, and the week before that, we were talking about nothing but Halloween and happy, scary things. So now we get to talk about unhappy, scary things, um, like some of the news that has, that had actually come out when we recorded la- last time, but is now something that we have to address because we do have the return of the original Garbage Man. Because of course we do. Uh, I don't know how many people remember this. If you've been listening to our podcast from the beginning, you will know that within a couple of episodes. Episode four. Um, episode four. All right. When um, uh, when we began recording was when the Harvey Weinstein stuff began coming out. It was kind of the real beginning of this latest Me Too movement. And so, of course, because he just won't stay down, Harvey Weinstein is back in the news. Harvey Weinstein came back into the news um, back nearing the end of October when he turned up at an event for young performers in Lower Manhattan. He he arrived with an entourage to watch Actors Hour, which is a monthly event dedicated to artists at the downtown bar in the Lower East Side. This is from the BuzzFeed article that came out um, almost directly after this incident. Several women actually confronted him um one comedian kelly bachman from the stage and then another woman uh there's actually a video of her like yelling at him uh and eventually being escorted from the bar of course the other thing that happened was that a number of the men present actually began booing kelly bachman uh as she was making jokes about Weinstein and about the shit that he has done. And so this this has kind of reinvigorated the discussion about the Me Too movement, about what effect it's actually having on the culture. And is, you know, a, a number of people have said this is uh, prepping, he's prepping for a comeback, he's seeing if he's going to be welcome. And what's very disturbing is that the audience, a lot of the audience at least, uh, particularly the male sections of the audience and the bar itself, appeared to uh to side with weinstein which is very disturbing because you're kind of like why would you side with weinstein in this particular in this particular space i mean this this is a man who's been credibly accused of multiple accounts of rape um there is and there's almost no doubt that he's done this this none of this is not you know isolated incidents this is not he said she said there is no space for a question mark in any of this he has raped multiple people and he has committed sexual assault multiple times. And so 
kind of wonder why are people still kind of going to his side? Um, so, Karen, what do you think about this? I mean, I think that we've, we've talked about Weinstein more than I think any human being deserves to be talked about, especially someone like him. But what do you think? Yeah, and we've talked about him, I think, probably more than any other offender <laughs> that we've talked about on this podcast ever. And the fact that he's this we're the fact that we're not even still talking about old stories we're talking about current stuff just makes me crazy it's the fact that he has an entourage first of all before we even get into what happened while he was there he still has people that are following him around and doing his bidding and inviting him to places and welcoming him and if you dare question that you're the bad guy? I just, I don't understand that mentality. And it, I think it's a real look at how powerful he really is. Not even was, yeah. but is. And the fact that he still wields so much power. Honestly, one of the things that really worried me in this situation was like, is he still doing stuff behind the scenes that we don't even know about? Is he still contributing to decisions that we aren't aware of? Because if he's able to just go out and about in public at an event that is defend or that is supporting the very people that he exploited for so many years, young artists, um, what does what does that mean about what he's doing that we can't see? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that this, I think, almost more so than just like Weinstein specifically, uh, I think that this has kind of raised a lot of the fears that a lot of people have had around me, too, is that, that it wouldn't ultimately have an effect, that we would not be able to drive these men out of public, of at least the public eye, at least the business eye. And Weinstein is weird because he's not an actor. He uh, he's not a director. Like he's not an artist. He's a he was a producer. And he kind of had his his grip on a number of films and of course so he's lost i believe that he's actually lost his company i mean he doesn't have yeah, it's gone that space anymore which is a good thing mm -hmm. but at the same time yeah and and of course a number of people have said that this is him testing the waters for a comeback of course we were already seeing a number of these men people like louis ck uh trying to do comebacks and there has been pushback which is a good thing like louis ck has been booed harvey weinstein has been booed um but there's still this like willingness of clubs and uh public spaces to let them in and to say okay we're gonna you know we're we're gonna allow them to be in our space i mean i think that harvey weinstein should be run out of every place he tries to go yeah uh, well, and that seems so easy to do. That's the thing. Like, yeah, exactly. he's Harvey Weinstein. It's not like people don't know who he is, don't know what he's done. And that's one that I don't think if you try to throw him out of somewhere, you're going to get a lot of people that are trying to say, no, no, let him stay. People are going to be like, all right, either they're going to be glad that you kicked him out or they're just going to be indifferent to it. Well, there are other people that you might have a harder time um, like Woody Allen and his jazz and stuff like that. I could see that being met because that is so, um, even though I don't think it should be two-sided, like <laughs> there are people that are on both sides of that issue. A lot of people, it's kind of split down the middle. And so I could see something like that where it's, it's harder to get universal support for getting rid of him. But for Weinstein, who is seriously going to like, 
if you kick him out, we're all leaving too, you know? And, like, nobody's going to do that. Yeah, exactly. It's like that difference between being an artist, someone like Woody Allen, who is an artist and who has made films and produced music, etc., that people like, and yeah. like for good reason, um, versus someone like Weinstein, who, who, you know, he's produced things, but he's not an artist. He's, he's a businessman. That's really what he is. So exactly. there's some, there, but that's where I think that there seems to be something more insidious going on in all of this. Um, and we'll have to wait and see. One of the uh, one of the articles that I read when all of this was coming out was an article in Vox by uh, I believe Constance Grady, who's talking about that Weinstein's attempt at a comeback or apparent attempt at a comeback was very similar to what Mel Gibson did. And of course, if we want to run back a little bit. Uh, now, of course, Mel Gibson is, again, more in the Woody Allen kind of category that he is an, an artist. He's an actor and a director. Right. Uh, and that's what he's known for. He's not known for just producing films. Um, but Gibson, you know, if we want to remember, he, I mean, he got drunk. He threatened the, the mother of his child. He used all kinds of horrible racial slurs. He has been accused of domestic abuse, all of this stuff. And yet, you know, we're still casting him in family-friendly films, and he's being nominated for Oscars. Uh, and that that is very, very troubling. And Gibson kind of did this, I even remember when this was going on, Gibson did this comeback tour, essentially. Like, he went on Oprah and and talk shows and talked about, you know, his alcoholism and talked about all of these different things. And what it, what it really was was whether or not it was sincere it really was him positioning himself to be acceptable again. And he was accepted again. He's still accepted. Yeah. And that's that's a problem. So we'll have to wait and see if, if Weinstein is able to pull something like that off. I do agree with you that the, the difference here is that we've got uh, someone who, you know, what has Har what will our world really be any the worse off if Harvey Weinstein never produces another film? Not I really. Mean... <laughs> The movies I've seen this year have been amazing, and this is all stuff, well, I mean, a few things were in the works before, but most of what I've seen this year that I've loved is stuff that has been coming out in the years since he was taken out, like, since he's been gone in the last two years. And um, I think it's interesting, because I do think that even in the, the films that we see this year, there's a sense that the tide is changing in Hollywood. And honestly, I think Hollywood's better off without him. Uh, not just because of the terrible, terrible abusive crimes that he was committing, but allegedly, so we don't get sued. Um, but also because the the stranglehold he had on the industry yeah. from a business standpoint, I think it's, I think you really, I think we're starting to see the difference, but by not having his influence there. And I really hope that he never gets to come back. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that we all do. And I agree with you. I mean, the, Harvey Weinstein's problem beyond the rape allegations <laughs> um, <laughs> was that like, you know, he was known for being a bully. He was known for being controlling. He was known for uh, basically coming into conflict with directors and with, you know, if we're going to talk about artists with artists, um, uh, and reconfiguring films or attempting to or basically stopping the release of films because they weren't quite to his liking and things like that. And so he, yeah, you were right. He really did have 
this degree of power over the production of art yeah. that was very troubling. And often it, it turned out that like that that control, it's not like he made the films better. It seems like he actually made them worse. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, so, I really don't want to see his face ever again. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know who does. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently uh, some people at that club do. Like, I honestly, to be totally honest, I, if I passed Harvey Weinstein on the street, I don't think I would recognize him. <laughs> like, I don't think I'd be like, oh, that's totally Harvey Weinstein. Like, I would just be like, what? Is that so, like, like some guy? He, look, he looks like everybody else in New York. I mean, seriously. Uh, anyways, so let's see. Let's move on. I mean, we're, we could continue to talk about garbage people very sadly. Jeff Goldblum decided to weigh in on the Woody Allen thing, and I don't know why, uh, other than the fact that, you know, we, we can't have anything that's nice and happy and joyful, and stop making me sad, Jeff. I have a feeling that there's going to be more shit coming out that I don't want to hear, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, yeah, that's true. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm aware, I'm aware of the rumors that have been circulating, and while I've not heard anything, uh, concrete yet, I, I, we're gonna, we're gonna hear something in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, but so... Well, it's one of those things, again, it's like, until I hear something specific and substantial, like, what am I supposed to do with rumors? This is what we used to talk about with Kristen all the time, and her, reading her blind items, like... I'm not going yeah. to mentally cancel people until I know why I'm doing it. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, it's it's worth paying attention to the buzz and things like that. But, yeah, you're also with something like blind items, you're constantly imposing, okay, who does this sound like? Uh, mm-hmm. And and sometimes you might be wrong, but, yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're just going to have to wait and see. But, yeah, Goldblum recently came out and while he did say that the cultural shift of the me too movement has been very very positive and long overdue uh he still admires alan's work and he wouldn't refuse to work with him unless he learned something more of course the woody allen accusations have been in the public eye for 20 30 years now um and so everyone who knows something knows and, you know, Goldblum is not the only one. There have been numerous, numerous actors that we otherwise enjoy uh, who have kind of come out in support of Woody Allen. People like Diane Keaton, um, Javier Bardem, Scarlett Johansson, who just continues to be a very good actress and also just needs to shut the fuck up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so we've got that. <laughs> We've got more accusations about Roman Polanski from 1975. Again, not surprising. Well, yeah, but here's the thing about... Oh, I didn't... I somehow missed that part. But um, here's the thing about what Goldblum said. So yeah. I'm not exactly sure what the context was of how this came up, but it kind of sounds like it was sort of a retrospective look at, at his career. And one of his earliest roles was in Annie Hall. He had a very small yeah. role in Annie Hall. And... So he's talking about how, I mean, Woody Allen kind of helped give him his start and also encouraged him to pursue his music, which is something that, I mean, he just recorded a jazz album and he does weekly shows in L.A., Lauren, if you ever want to come out, uh, we'll go. Uh, Apparently he spends a lot of time talking to the audience. So um, (laughs) just saying. Anyway, uh, do it now before we find anything out. Yeah, Um, really. That's like, that's where I'm at right now. (laughs) 
<laughs> but anyway, uh, but in but what he specifically said, and again, like, I mean, please don't think that I'm defending anybody that defends him, the uh, Woody Allen, but but I think it's really important to look at what he specifically said. And uh, so first of all, yeah, he's talking about like, yeah, I did enjoy working with him in the day. And then when when he's talking about this and whether he would work with him again, I would consider working with him again until I learned something more. So he's also open to like, maybe there's more information that I don't know. And if that's the case, yeah, I'll definitely reconsider my position. He's not like, oh, he didn't do it. He's basically saying what I think is a fairly reasonable. I, I mean, like I said, this is something that a lot of people don't have a there, there's two sides of this and it's pretty split down the middle. And then there are people where it sounds like Jeff Goldblum is where it's like, eh, maybe he did it. Maybe he didn't, but I'm not going to mentally cancel him because I don't know. Yeah. And I, I mean, th- this is, this is fairly similar to what a lot of actors have said. Yeah. Uh, and like, you know, we mentioned a couple of them and there are quite a few though that have come right out and said, I don't believe that it happened. I believe she thinks it happened, but I don't believe it. He's innocent, you know, and that's not, that's also not what Goldblum's saying. Yeah. And, and I do think that we need, we need to note that. And there's, you know, we've talked about this before. There's always this conflict when you're, again, when you're talking about an artist and you're talking about someone that, you know, for someone as an actor who has shaped your career. Mm-hmm. And you're grateful to them. And maybe you've also had very good experiences with them. I've said before about Scarlett Johansson, I have no doubt that she has had good experiences with him as an actor. Yeah. And that you don't want to believe those things about someone that you like and someone that you get along with. Um, and that someone who, as far as you have ever experienced, is a perfectly nice and normal human being. Uh, and that conflict, you know, that we have that conflict as critics, we have that conflict as film fans being able to look at um, at films and knowing that the person who made them or the person that appears in them is not a good person and, and has done horrible things, that is something that is difficult to actually navigate. And it's, e- it's even more difficult to navigate if you actually know that person. You're like, uh-huh. well, he was always nice to me, you know? And of course we want everyone to go off and be like, no, we believe the victims. You know, this is unacceptable. Yes, he's he's been my friend, but that's not something that I'm going to do anymore. But a lot of people can't bring themselves to do that for a multitude of reasons. And uh, I mean, I do I do think that we need we need to be a little. On the one hand, I think we need to be a little hard nosed about it and be like, no, we need we need to to walk away from these people. And on the other hand, we also need to be understanding for those people who who have difficulty walking away. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to mention Roman, you know, speaking of directors that I like, <laughs> uh, films that I like, films that I like, uh, you know, Roman Polanski has been accused of uh, rape again. Um, this one from 1975. Again, not surprising, but it, it is interesting in the context of France's issues with Me Too right now. Uh, fairly recently, the French actress um, Adele Hanel uh, came out and talked about being uh, abused by a director after she she had actually watched the documentary Leaving Neverland and began thinking about her own experiences of abuse when she was a teenager um, in reference to the film director Christophe Rougier. 
And so this, this has kind of catalyzed uh, some more discussions in France where the French have even more of a problem in some ways than we do in that they have this tendency to just be like, what is private? And, you know, what your private sexual proclivities are is private and we're not going to talk about it even when it's criminal. And now with the Me Too movement, there have been more actresses particularly coming out and talking about these men and talking about people like um, uh, Luc Besson and and this guy that have actually, you know, have actually done incredibly abusive things. And so it's interesting to bring this up also and then in the context of Roman Polanski, who's, of course, been kind of a darling in France for 50 years uh, and, and continues to make films continues to release films continues to be uh, awarded for making films and within all of that context you know there does seem to be some advance at least in the fact that these women are feeling more empowered to come forward and to actually address these things and to say this man this man hurt me and it may have been 20 years ago but this is something that i need to talk about now Uh, do you have any thoughts on that (laughs) well yeah because i think it's interesting well I don't even know how to I don't even know how to talk about this but I just I think the fact that these things are hap- have also happened in Europe and people still want to defend him the fact that he's still like yeah none of this happened it's like how many times can someone be accused of something before people will finally say yeah this this needs to be dealt with even if it is something that was a long time ago and and uh, i mean in the united states it's pretty much i mean i don't think i don't think an officer and a spy is making it here to the united states i think he's pretty much done i think people here understand that nothing good can come for them by working with him but in europe it's still he's still welcomed i mean he he got to roll out the red carpet in Venice and and won an award and he still gets to make movies and you've got all these European actors that are like, yeah, but he's great. And I just, I don't understand what it's going to take for them to understand who this man is, what he has done in his life, what he has done to people. And of course, it's like, well, why didn't she come out 25 years ago when we still could have prosecuted? And you wouldn't have prosecuted anyway, you know? And I just, I just feel so sad for these women that have had to live with this for so long and they finally have the courage to tell their stories and they're just met with so much ridicule and disbelief still. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, I understand why people wait. (laughs) No, exactly. But But at the same time, I think that there is something positive in the fact that, that even within these countries that have proved to be very unwelcome or unwelcoming to to these kinds of accusations that they actually are coming out and talking about it now. Yeah. Um, whether or not it's it true. ultimately, you know, we've talked about this before, whether or not this ultimately, it ultimately results in, you know, any kind of criminal prosecutions, there's still this like, you know what, and, and having high profile actresses, someone like Adele um, Penelope, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing, but she's recently, I mean, she's appearing in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. This is a, major film that is coming out that has been mm-hmm. incredibly praised. So she's using that as kind of a, a stepping stone and saying like, you know, this is something that happened to me and we need to talk about it. Uh, and hopefully, you know, again, 
giving space for other women and other men to come out and say that this that things have happened to them and to actually at least air it out in public and have that conversation in public rather than this being this deeply personal thing that um that you just have to live with and never talk about and never engage with yeah yeah absolutely and and that's the thing um and this is one of the things we've talked about this a lot on this podcast in the last two years, but I think that it's something people still don't necessarily understand or need to be reminded of. But so much of coming forward isn't about punishing the perpetrator. I mean, we would love to see that happen, obviously, but we understand that it's probably not going to. But so much of it is just about like ed- informing the world, educating the world about who these people are, what they have done. And then also it's, uh, it's just part of being able to heal and move forward. I think to be able to say, Hey, this happened to me. And then that puts you in touch with other victims and, and a mm-hmm. support system. Once you get past all the vitriol that gets unleashed on you for daring to say <laughs> something, you know? Um, yeah. Cause there's definitely no, uh, well, the upside is delayed, I think, when people come forward. it's It does have benefits eventually, mm. but that's not the immediate aftermath, usually. Um, but I think that that's, that's what people really need to understand, is that it's not about, like, oh, now this is what's finally going to get Polanski behind bars. No, that's never going to happen. We know that's never yeah. going to happen. But he also needs to stop making movies, and he needs to stop being welcomed, just like Weinstein needs to stop being welcomed out in society. And the more that people understand who these men really are and what they have done in their lives, what they have done to people, I think the the better we are, the better off we are when we know these things and when we have a full picture. And I think that it can, in the long run, only be good. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's move on from horrible, horrible men to stupid men. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we are now in, I'm, I'm guessing, like week 97 of the Scorsese Wars. Uh the villages have all been burned. At least. We are wandering in the wasteland, wondering what happened to cinema. Um, <laughs> so, oh my God. So I can't wait for his still... book, The Death of Cinema. <laughs> so how, how we are still talking about this, I do not know. But Martin Scorsese, who has been criticized for his attitude toward Marvel films, and has been questioned about it numerous times, finally was like, fine, I'm going to write a fucking op-ed in the New York Times. So he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times sort of addressing some of his comments about Marvel movies. He has called them theme park rides. Uh, and he, and he, it, in the article, he sort of clarifies his approach to film, his feelings about film, and why he has a particular problem with these kinds of franchise movies. It is a fantastic article, even if you don't agree with him. And I, I don't fully agree with him. Uh, but it is... It's a wonderful and interesting approach to his views about cinema and also considering the generation of film directors and um, uh, film artists that he comes from. So in talking about all of this, he he says a lot of really intelligent things, um, but one of the things that kind of hit home to me was that 
one of the, the people that he majorly addressed was Alfred Hitchcock, who's one of my favorite film directors. Uh, and, and one of the things that he talks about is that, I'll just quote him here, 60 or 70 years later, we're still watching those pictures and marveling at them. But is it the thrills and the shocks that we keep going back to? I don't think so. The set pieces in New York, in uh, North by Northwest are, stu are stunning, but they would be nothing more than a succession of dynamic and elegant compositions and cuts without the painful emotions at the center of the story or the absolute lostness of Cary Grant's character. And he's then comparing these to, uh, to modern franchises, which he's essentially saying are nothing but those set pieces. They are, they are sequels in name, but they are remakes in spirit, and everything in them is officially sanctioned because it, really, it can't really be any other way. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic and a really interesting comparison that he's making, that he's saying that there is an emotional undercurrent, in his view, to something like Hitchcock films, which are often characterized by these big flourishes. Um, but it's the emotions that keep us coming back, whereas in his view, Marvel films and a lot of these franchise films don't have anything underneath them. And I'm not 100% certain if I agree with that, but I think that that's an interesting perspective to take and an interesting comparison. So what did you think about all of this, Karen? I mean, we've been talking about this for, like I say, 97 weeks, so. It has been 84 years. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I would like to thank Mr. Scorsese for writing out exactly what I've been telling people he was saying <laughs> because I've been not defending him, but I've been trying I've been like basically in the last couple weeks having to translate him for people who don't understand how words work and uh they kept like, so then I ended up in this weird situation where people were, like, arguing with me about the points I was explaining that he was making. And I'm like, guys, I'm not saying I agree with this. Why are you making me, why are you making me argue his case? I'm just telling you what he's actually saying and how you're wrong about how you're interpreting it. Oh, my gosh. It's been fun. You guys are awesome. Never, well, totally change. Um, but anyway, uh, what I really, uh, what I really do agree appreciate about what he said I like you I don't agree with everything that he talks about in here but uh, one of the things about not just Marvel but DC does this too a yeah. lot of the big franchise films do this where it is by committee it's you know I mean just yesterday there was this whole argument about how they shouldn't show uh, big movies like Star Wars to the critics first. They should show them to fans first. And it's like, oh, right, because fandom's not toxic at all. Um, and critics aren't hilarious, fans of things. No, no. Critics hate things. We hate movies. That's why we write about them and spend so much time <laughs> watching them. But And do podcasts to talk about the people that make them. But I just, I, I really... Reading through what he's talking about and the fact that, you know, where he talked, because he talked about this before, too, where there's really not much in the way of stakes. There's no danger. There's no real risk. He says nothing is at risk. Mm -hmm. The pictures are made to satisfy a specific set of demands and they are designed as variations on a finite number of themes. They are sequels in name, but they are remakes in spirit. Yeah. And I love I I really like the way that he said that, even though. Again, I don't fully agree with him. I think that there are some really beautiful moments in some of the Marvel movies. Wonder Woman is especially just 
incredibly powerful for me. Um, and some other ones do have that too, but I don't disagree with him about the fact that really nothing is at risk, especially when it comes to Marvel movies. I mean, I love Avengers. I loved Infinity War and I loved Endgame. But one of the things was, no matter what the journey is to get to that end, you know the Avengers are going to win in the end. Yeah. Spoiler alert, the Avengers win in the end. Uh, And yeah, it's a rough road and it's an emotional journey to get there, especially if you really love these characters and you've been following it along from the beginning. But you know that even if you can't see how they will prevail. And yeah. so nothing truly is at risk. And that's what he's talking about. And uh, and I think that the the conversation is, okay, for him, that's not cinematic. And you know what? That's all right. He's allowed to think that. Yeah. And you're allowed to think that it is cinematic. And it's okay. And we're allowed to have different opinions. And that's exactly what this is. He wrote an op-ed, not an encyclopedia. <laughs> Well, and, and, you know, he even says at the beginning, he's just like, you know what, if I was a different generation, I might not hold this perspective. I might actually right. want to make these kinds of films. This might be the, the thing that I love, but I'm not. <laughs> Which is not the same as saying that he's out of touch because he's an old man. I would like to remind you, Stan Lee just died at age 95. <laughs> Sorry, I have a lot of feelings about that whole out of touch thing. Oh, yeah, no, the whole out of touch I will thing say, is, too... Is yeah. Ridiculous. Go on. Yeah. It is ridiculous. Oh, I was just going to say, there was one thing in here that really surprised me, and it made me laugh that it surprised me. <laughs> and it was when he talked about seeing Psycho at a midnight movie, a midnight screening on opening night. And I was like, wait a minute. They used to do midnight screenings? <laughs> like, And I just thought about how my generation just thinks we invented so many things that they were doing mm-hmm. like way before. It just made me uh-huh. laugh. Well, and, and, you know, you talk about risk, uh, yeah. and it, specifically when it comes to something like Psycho, and Hitchcock is an interesting example because he is very much a studio director. He And, and Scorsese even refers to him as like maybe he was a franchise director in that he always made, particularly by the time he came to America, he always made, quote, Hitchcock films. And these were things that, you know, there was a very established style, there was an established, there was even an established stable of actors that would appear in these films, and that you kind of knew what to expect to a certain degree. But something like Psycho, where, you know, and I'm, spoiler alert for Psycho, if you have not seen it, please go, go see it. If you do not know what happens in Psycho, please, like, skip ahead and then go see it. Um, if you don't know what happens at the end of Psycho, please message me because I have some questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've said before. First I've, of all, how did that happen? I've watched film. I've watched that film with people who did not know what happens. Uh, oh my gosh! And it's crazy. But, but if you th- when Psycho came out, the act of half an hour into the film killing off your major star. Yeah. I mean, he killed off Janet Lee. Janet Lee at that time was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. She, so one, she was willing to do that, right? Which is, mm-hmm. is her taking a risk. But two, he was willing to do that as a director and as, as a writer being like, we're going to 
put the audience in the position of Janet Lee for, you know, 35, 40 minutes, and then we're going to kill her and yeah. completely shift the focus of the film. That was a major risk that he took. And in that particular instance, it did pay off. And, and it, it's, you know, an iconic film now. It's one of his, it's considered to be one of his greatest films. Um, but that, that is a risk. And you don't feel like any superhero film uh, produced by anybody really is going to take that kind of a risk with filmmaking. Um, and, you know, and some of it is that we're also conditioned to expect those kind of things. But I, I look at some of the other major films that have been made recently, and there are films that take risks. Parasite takes a risk. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the best films that I have seen in recent years feel risky. They feel like I'm going to try something and it might work and it might fall flat and we have to, but we have to try it because that is what film is about. That's what art is about. Um, and, and you're never going to see that in a franchise film ever. No, never. And I think that this is the world that we're in now. And he does talk about Netflix too. And he talks mm -hmm. about how sure every director that makes a movie they want their movie to be seen up on the big screen, but that's just not the reality anymore. And part of that, well, the big reason for that is because the studios own up. So, I mean, they don't literally own the theaters, but they basically do. And they get to control what's played and they get to dictate so much of what the what the theaters can project and how many screens they're going to go on. And, and I appreciated the fact that he said, you know, everyone's talking about supply and demand, but it's really not that. It's a chicken and egg situation. Is it that people only want to see the studio movies so that's all they're getting? Or is it that the studios are only making them so that's all people are seeing? The thing is that when that's all you supply to people and you don't encourage them to try new things and to see new things, eventually that is all they're going to want. It's like with, with people... Uh, with food, for example, if all you ever eat is junk food, then that's what you crave. That's what you want. You just, yeah. you want another burger. But if you're eating healthy food, then that's what you crave. So yeah. it's, it's similar with, with cinema. Yeah. And, and I think I, I go back to, and I think this is probably where some of the split came for Scorsese was when um, Silence was released a couple of years ago. And Silence should have that been that Japanese mob movie. Yes, the Japanese <laughs> mob movie. Sorry, <laughs> I have something to say about that in a minute. Um, I just, I just have a little caveat after at the end of all of this. Um, but I remember when it came out, and so like I, I was living in New York. I went to see it because I was living in New York. I'm like, oh, silence. You know, this is the new Martin Scorsese film. The theater that I was in was packed. Uh, and this is a, you know, over a two and a half hour film about Jesuit missionaries in Japan. And but it's a Scorsese film. Now, you would think that it would at least get this major release. It would at least get an Oscar campaign. It would get, you know, attention in in some way. And I remember, like, I talked to my father. My parents live in upstate New York, you know, not totally in the middle of nowhere, but not a, a major metropolitan area. They could not see the film. They could not go to see it. It was not available on any of the screens near them. And that the fact that a Scorsese film, this is one, probably one of the biggest name directors working today, like whose, whose name, like Hitchcock's, actually does sell a film to a certain degree. 
the fact that a Scorsese film was not being sold. It's not like that it it was available and no one went to see it. It was not being sold. It was not being shown in um, tons of major theaters. And that is you know, that begins to raise questions. Just like so, what is the why is this not being um, promoted? Why is this not being exploited? Why is this not being treated as an Oscar run? Um, all of that stuff. And we're seeing that more and more where, you know, I can go see a lot of films in New York City. I can go see Jojo Rabbit in limited release. I can go see Parasite or Portrait of a Lady on Fire. All of these. If I recommend them to my friends who live outside of a major area, they're just like, yeah, we'd love to see that. Can't see it because, but I can see Spider-Man on 15 different screens. Um, I just pulled up the AMC by my house and I live in an area where we do get uh, we actually have an art house. It's a regal, but they show mostly independent and foreign films, which is great. But I didn't look at that one. I looked at an AMC that's not far away from there, just because I was curious what the breakdown was of what they're showing. Because AMC, in the last few months especially, has really been made the, making this push about artisan films and they have like their own little stamp on it now and everything but yeah so at my current theater today they have two theaters showing dr sleep which is good we'll talk about that in a minute two theaters showing terminator dark fate uh, one showing last christmas one showing midway that's actually what's playing in the dolby theater uh one showing joker uh looks like two no one theater has maleficent um, and then you've got playing with fire. So, so far these are all studio movies mm-hmm. and then you get Harriet. Oh, and there's a theater showing Adam's family still and one showing Zombieland and countdown and Arctic dogs, which, oh, that's just on one screen at one time, but still. And then you get parasite mm-hmm. and then a Chinese film called better days And this is what's interesting is everything like on my theater, because I have AMC a list. And so it'll tell you like, oh, this screening's full. This one's almost full. The only ones that are almost full all day, Better Days is almost sold out. The Chinese language film and nothing else is. And then tonight they're doing a Met Live presentation of Madam Butterfly. And that is sold out. Every one of these studio movies has tons of seats available all day today. So it's like, guys, people want to see these other films, but yeah. they're not being offered to them. They're not being made available. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I did I did want to say that anyone who thinks that Scorsese has only ever made mob movies also apparently thinks that he directed Godfather and Scarface or something because I I don't know <laughs> like because uh, someone recently like on, on on Twitter counted up the number of actual mob movies that Scorsese has made and I think the count was four uh like actual mob movies you know and two of his most arguably his his quote masterpieces the ones that people tend to cite are Taxi Driver which is a psycho thriller and yeah, that's not a mob movie. Not a mob movie. And Raging Bull, which is a boxing movie. 
So I don't know what you people are talking about. Like his last three films are, yes, a mob movie with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and Joe Pesci. Al Pacino, who he has never worked with. Okay. Oh yeah, never. I liked he that too. Where people are like, "Yeah, he's just working with the same old group." It's like, no, he's never worked with Al Pacino ever. Yeah, sure, they he's... know each other, but <laughs> they work never, together. never. You're thinking of Godfather. You're and thinking this is of only the second. <laughs> exactly, which is not Scorsese. Not all New York Italian men are the same. <laughs> uh. And the last time he worked with De Niro was in 1995. Yeah. But so his last three films are a mob movie, uh, Jesuit missionaries in Japan, and a Bob Dylan documentary. Okay, so let's just put to rest this whole, like, oh, he only makes mob movies. No, he really he... needs to branch out, man. No, you've only <laughs> ever seen Goodfellas. That's your fucking problem. Like, that's exactly. the issue. <laughs> and okay. probably The Departed. Maybe. Maybe. I honestly think that a lot of these guys have only ever seen Goodfellas. Yeah. That that would actually explain a lot of things. <laughs> so, moving on. We'll just talk about this briefly, because we are in the weirdest timeline. Uh, <laughs> James Dean will return to the screen. He's using been cast C- in a new movie. He's been cast in a new movie. <laughs> Using CGI, uh, he's going to be in a film called Finding Jack, um, which is, I believe, like a Vietnam War movie or something like that. But of course, the... Yeah, the- I can tell you. It's because um, I had to write the news article for Word Circuit <laughs> about this. Um, and it was really hard not to be snarky about it. <laughs> but um, basically, it's based on a book. And, th- and I believe the book is based on true story. But it's... Basically, it's the end of world at the Vietnam. Sorry, the end of the Vietnam War. They found all these dogs, military dogs that the United States was just going to abandon. And so this is basically um, a couple of people that are trying to do something about that. And James Dean, for some reason. Yes, James Dean has the second lead role. He's number two on the call sheet. (laughs) I like or he would be if he was alive that's that's how that's how significant his role is in this movie and it's like I don't understand okay I don't understand any of this and I don't understand why they want to do this and why they think that James Dean is the right person but what I where my first question started was this movie takes place 20 years after he died like I could kind of understand their their wanting to do this if it was a movie set in the 50s since he's kind of considered this like 50s icon since that was when he broke through and also when he died so he basically as far as our consciousness he lived in the 50s and that's it and so having him be in this creating him to be in this movie that takes place in the 70s just I don't understand why yeah. Even if you can do the technology, why is he the one? It's it just seems to be an experiment to see to see I yeah, to see if I if they can do the technology. You know, I was I was just looking, I was like, did James Dean have any unfinished projects when he died? And of course his last his last um film role, I believe, was Giant. 
Yes. Uh, and, and he did actually have a couple of unfinished projects. He was set to star in Somebody Up There Likes Me, which and the role was eventually taken over by Paul Newman. And according to Nicholas Ray, he was also supposed to make a film called Heroic Love. Uh, and so that in itself would be interesting. Like, let's make Somebody Up There Likes Me and put James Dean in it. You know, let's mm-hmm. let, that would actually be kind of interesting. I still think that this is all kinds of creepy, but that concept would be more interesting. But yeah, something like we're just going to stick James Dean into a Vietnam War movie. It's just it's so odd. Like, I don't even know how to engage with this other than the fact that this is kind of a stepping stone to try to, you know, if it works or if, if, if it makes. So in other words, if it makes money, it's not whether or not it's good. Um to try and use other actors and you know people like James Dean, as I said, wait until these people get a hold of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to be fucking disturbing at that point. But this this yeah. whole idea, you know, and we've seen this a little bit. We saw this with um, Peter Cushing in, uh, and now I'm blanking on the name of the Star Wars film, Rogue One. Rogue One, uh, which was creepy. Mm-hmm. And we've seen, and we saw that a little bit again with Carrie Fisher in Rogue One. Yep. And now we're actually seeing it with someone like James Dean, who only has a handful of uh, films to his credit. And this is really just going to be his image superimposed onto another actor. So it's not really going to be James Dean at any level. It's going to be another actor playing James Dean with an image of James Dean over him. Yeah, exactly. Um, question. Are you are you old enough to remember the Super Bowl commercial with Christopher Reeve from like a long time ago? No, but I do remember the uh, the Fred Astaire dancing with a vacuum cleaner. Okay, well, see, and that was actual footage, and they just like spliced things together. But the Christopher Reeve Super Bowl commercial, I can't even remember exactly what the ad was for. But I remember it was really controversial at the time because this was after his accident. This is after he'd been paralyzed. He was still alive. But um, they did this They did this commercial where he wheels out or someone like pushes him out in his wheelchair and then he gets up and walks. And there were people who thought it was real. I mean, to me, it looked very clear that it was CGI, but... Uh, even for, you know, I think this was like 99 or 2000, something like that. But um, there were a lot of people who really thought it was real. And so as as much as it's like, gosh, just let James Dean live in peace, let all these, or rest in peace, let all these actors rest in peace. Also, what concerns me is with this kind of technology, it's going to get to the point where you cannot believe your eyes. You don't know what if what you're seeing is real or not. And mm-hmm. technology is also already pretty darn good. I mean, dinosaurs look real in some of the Jurassic Park movies, you know, and things like that. But to get to where you don't know if, like, you can't tell the difference between whether an actor is really in a movie or not. I mean, that's yeah. really fucking disturbing to me. Yeah, it, it is very disturbing. And this this particular company also represents more than 1,700 mm-hmm. entertainment, sports, music, and historical personalities, including Burt yeah. Reynolds, Christopher Reeve, uh, Ingrid Bergman, Neil Armstrong, Betty Davis, and Jack Lemmon. So you could literally see these all, these people all in a movie together. But of course... Grumpy Old Men 3, yes! Well, exactly, yeah, but it, it's... It's such a weird thing, and and the thing is, there is no way that any of these people could have given the right 
to exactly. to their image, right? They could yeah. not say, yes, it's okay if you CGI me. You know, J- James Dean could never have said, ah, oh, it's, it's fine with me if in like 60 years you decide to CGI me into a Vietnam War movie. He could not have done that. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. And And so it is very creepy. It is very exploitative. It's very dangerous because you can put you could put words into these people's mouths that they never would have spoken. You could put performances around them that they never would have given. And yet it's, it's this forced resurrection. It's very bizarre and very disturbing. So yeah, let's not do this. Can we just like stop? (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes, please. Let's do that. So in relation to this, we did get a question. Um, This is from at Reese Pie. Uh, talking of CGing actors, have you seen The Congress? I didn't totally love it at the time, but it might be ripe for rewatch. Of course, The Congress is uh, a movie where a woman actually, or an actress actually does give a studio the rights to her likeness so that they can essentially de-age her and put her into films as a younger version of herself. And then things get weird after that. I have not actually seen the movie. Have you? No, I haven't. So... That sucks. Sorry. So thank you for the recommendation. I will check it out. Yeah, I, I remember Sounds being interested timely. in it when it came out, and it did get um uh it did get a lot of, of interesting press, and particularly that like I know that there that she she winds up kind of preserved in this digital world, and it's about interacting with that and the fact that like she can basically be used in film forever. Uh, because she's given them the rights to her digital likeness. And it, it's, it stars Robin Wright and is based on a story by Stanislaw Lem. Um, but yeah, so thank you for that question. We will check it out and we will report back. Yes, definitely. Uh, the other question comes from me because <laughs> I was thinking about this yesterday and so I just wanted to ask it. Uh, I was considering what are some, you know, we talk a lot about how how are uh you know how you need to watch a lot of film to be a critic how you should be constantly trying to expand your cinematic education but of course none of us can watch all of the film all of the time there's so much out there there's so much available but what do we consider to be major gaps in our cinematic education and i will start by saying that i just realized last night actually that while I like Japanese film in a lot of ways, the vast majority of the Japanese film that I have seen has been Kurosawa and some Ozu. And I've seen little bits, and I've seen a lot of the, the major masterpieces, things like Ugetsu and um, Kuedan and Sacha the Bailiff, but those are kind of considered to be the big ones. But what about some of these other directors that I just have never really delved into or experienced? Um, and And I want to, because... Japanese film is very different from Western cinema. It's also had an influence on Western cinema. And it's just a section of film that I've not really done much with. So what about you, Karen? What are what do you feel are some major gaps in your cinematic education? Well, you're going to not like my answer, but I'm going to say it's Hitchcock. Okay, so here are the films that you need to watch in chronological <laughs> yes, order. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But honestly, I mean, I've seen his major stuff. I've seen the things that everyone talks about. Strangers on a Train, uh, North by Northwest, of course, Psycho, Rear Window, Vertigo, all of those. But I haven't seen any of his British stuff. Um, I haven't seen any of his silent stuff. None of that. So that's a major gap for me. 
I definitely need to correct that. And honestly, I would like a list. <laughs> um, please give me some homework. Uh, uh, I will get to it in 2033. <laughs> no, honestly, go on to Criterion. Criterion right now has, I think this, I think it's still on there, is a British Hitchcock collection. Okay. So they've got like the 39 Steps, um, The Lady Vanishes, which is my favorite of his British films, Blackmail, The Lodger. Uh, the Lodger is, Blackmail is his first talkie. The Lodger is often considered to be one of his, his first quote Hitchcock film. Um, but it's a silent film. Uh, to Catch a Thief. Have you seen To Catch a Thief? Um, I've seen the one with Cary Grant. Yeah. Okay, so you've seen okay. some of the later. I didn't know. I don't know which ones he has, which of his movies he remade, and which ones he doesn't. He, I can't keep those straight. He remade the only the only one of his films that he he directly remade was uh, the Man Who Knew Too Much. So there's a British, oh okay. There's a British version which of, I've seen the I've seen the one with um, Doris Day yeah. and and there's there's a much much earlier British version with um, Peter Lorre as the villain actually. Oh, and it's great. It, it it is. I think it's a much better film than the Doris Day film. Interesting. It's very different. Also, uh, yeah, I I really recommend that one. I mean, you can't go wrong. Really, there are definitely some of his films, particularly some of his earlier films, that are not. Unless you're you're actually interested in studying Hitchcock, they're not, you know, that exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. movies like The Skin Game or uh, Champagne or Rich and Strange um, which are more like dramas and not, you know, not the quote Hitchcock film that we all know and love. But yeah, definitely start with stuff like The Lodger, Blackmail. Um, I've talked about Blackmail so much. Like, I love that movie. It's fantastic. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. You have talked about that one a lot. I need to see it. <laughs> so, yes. All right. Well, yeah. Watch more Hitchcock films. I will. Just like go on IMDb, like, all right, start at the beginning and work your way. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that probably is a good way to do it because then you can see the progression. You can see how how he changes, how times change. Yeah, yeah definitely. Rebecca, you've seen Rebecca. Yeah, I've seen Rebecca. Okay. So it sounds like you've seen a lot of his... Um... Dial M for murder. Yeah. Yeah, you've seen a lot of his American films. But mm-hmm. not not yeah. so much into the the British ones. Rope. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I confess, stuff like that. Pretty much, if uh, Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant is in it, I've probably seen it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we got some reviews to talk about. Karen, I'm going to let you talk for a little while because my voice is going just a little bit. Um, okay. Do you want to talk about Doctor Sleep? Yes, I would love to talk about Doctor Sleep. Um, so this is a sequel to The Shining and it's interesting because everybody knows, well, most people know that Stephen King infamously was not pleased with what Kubrick did with the novel when he turned it into a film because in King's mind, it kind of changed or didn't really get into the heart of what was going on with Jack Torrance. It was more of like the spectacle of, of what's happening in the Overlook Hotel, but it kind of didn't get into the psychology of what that was really doing to this family. And it's interesting because I like the book and I like the film and I understand, I definitely agree with him that there's differences and I see what he's talking about, but I like both for different reasons. What's fascinating is, so then King went and wrote Dr. Sleep a couple years ago 
which is a sequel to his novel. And it's about Dan, Danny Torrance all grown up. And uh, it's funny because he very definitely keeps his book intact and keeps the elements that were changed for the movie. He keeps them very intact in his sequel book. Um, so char- a character who died in the movie but lived in the book is still alive in King's book and Dr. Sleep and all that. So what was really interesting is going into this movie, which Mike Flanagan directed, is uh, how would he do this so that it was true to the book but also true to the movie? Because most people haven't read the books. They've only seen the movie. So how do you how do you manage that? And it's really interesting because Mike Flanagan figured out a good way to do both. And I didn't think that was possible. And I also didn't know like if it would be satisfying because I've read both. I've seen both. And I mean, man, Mike Flanagan, everyone wants to talk about how great Ari Aster is and how he's the new voice of horror. But man, Mike Flanagan really does some very interesting things. And I think that he's really good at he he keeps the jump scares to a minimum so that when they happen they're very effective but so much of what he does is establish this tone of creepiness but that's still it but it's also not overwhelming i think and that's what happens throughout doctor sleep you're seeing these characters and the way that they interact with each other and there's this element of creepiness and and danger but it also never feels like, uh, it never feels too much. Like, I never got to a point where I was like, oh my gosh, if this movie goes on any longer, I'm going to just lose my mind. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like that with some horror movies. Rebecca Ferguson plays the villain in this, and she is so fantastic. I mean, I love her anyway, but to see her take on a different type of character from what we've seen from her so far and just be so good at it was awesome. Ewan McGregor is delightful. He plays the grown-up Dan. Now he's Dan Torrance. And uh, he's just good. And he's he's that kind of, like, we've seen this character from him before where he's just kind of sweet. Um, and a little bit, like, he's constantly walking around, like, He's got this confidence about him, but he's still kind of scared, you know, as he's as he's dealing with some really heavy things. But yeah, overall, I just I think the movie is really well done. The girl that um, I don't know how much to say about what the story is, but basically, Dan, uh, he's he's I mean, he was really traumatized as a child, obviously. And so he's had a lot of demons. <laughs> Yeah, no, I wouldn't be traumatizing at <laughs> Obviously. all. Obviously. <don't> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's fine. He'll just shake it off. But um but it's like I mean, he kind of followed in his father's footsteps. Eventually, he became an alcoholic. He was a drifter and he winds up in this town and as he's starting to get clean, um his shine that he was burying so long under alcohol, it starts to pop back out and he ends up making a connection with this teenage girl. And it's funny because it's very, uh, they make sure to make it clear that, like, this is a weird circumstance and this should be very creepy that he's hanging out with this 13-year-old girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they also do a good job of, of building that relationship, too. And the girl that, that plays 
Abra, who has the biggest shine that anyone's ever seen or experienced. Um, she's just really good. And it's, I think this is her first movie. Her name is Kylie Curran. And it's like, man, she's she's a find. I'm excited to see more from her because she's great. So, yeah, I really liked it. It's funny because as much as I liked it, I the Scorsese op-ed was ringing through my head as I was watching it a little bit because I was thinking about I was thinking about how like I mean you don't know how this is gonna end but you kind of know how this is gonna end so but I really enjoyed it I think it's great awesome well I'm I'm looking forward to that I was hoping to get to see it this weekend but I don't think that's gonna happen but uh, hopefully next weekend I will get an opportunity to see it yeah uh, so I saw, I actually did see Terminator Dark Fate, and this is a, have, have you seen Terminator? I have not. You've not seen Terminator Dark Fate yet. All right. Yeah, no, I've missed that one. Uh, so I just wanted to give a, a really, it's been out for a couple of weeks now, but I just wanted to give a really quick rundown of it. Um, first of all, I liked it, and anyone who's bitching about it is wrong. Um, <laughs> it is definitely, I mean, this is not a difficult thing to do, but it is definitely one of the best, the best Terminator movie to come out since T2. Uh, again, not a hard thing, but still, like, it, it actually is an excellent film. It develops the characters really well. It develops people like Sarah Connor in a really interesting direction. And so the basic plot is um, Mackenzie Davis plays Grace, a soldier who is not a Terminator, but she has been augmented with machine parts, uh, who is sent back in time to save Danny Ramos, um, a, a young woman who is going to prove to be uh, a very important figure in the future wars against the machine. And of course, what has happened is the Judgment Day has not occurred because Sarah Connor stopped Judgment Day in Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Uh, but other things have happened, and this film kind of repeats the plot of the original Terminator in that you've got um, a soldier who is coming back in order to rescue the, a very important person, and then you also have uh, uh, Rev-9, who, which is a new brand of Terminator that has been produced and is coming back to try to kill her. So as they're on the run, Grace and Danny run into Sarah Connor, who has been running around just sort of executing Terminators whenever they pop up and is played by the wonderful and amazing Linda Hamilton, who deserves all of the love. And she's fantastic. She was Psycho Terminator mom in T2, and now she's Psycho Terminator grandma. Uh, absolutely love her. She's, she's just so good in this. And so they basically the three of them go on the run from uh, this Terminator who is trying to kill them. And it's about that journey and how they uh, figure out how to get rid of this guy and what Danny's role actually is in the future. So it's it's a really well done film. It's very well paced. Uh, it's very exciting in the sense that, you know, it, it repeats some of the same beats of things like the first Terminator, but it, it's doing it in a different way. And it's actually examining... Um, as some of the thematics as to the role of women in this future and the importance of women and it does some really interesting things with that uh, actually bending some of the tropes and even breaking some of the tropes that uh, the first Terminator introduced and the second Terminator kind of built on it makes it's one of the few 
like of these kinds of sequels that you know you're actually bringing back members of the original cast that i think actually does it very organically there isn't this sense of like oh, there's Linda Hamilton because she's Linda Hamilton and that's why she's here. She There actually is a purpose for Sarah Connor to be there. It fits in with the entire narrative. The same thing is true for Arnold Schwarzenegger um, when he shows up very late in the film. Uh, but so there's that excitement of like, oh yeah, they were in the first Terminator. But there's also that like this, this makes sense and this is an interesting sort of development of those characters and development of the franchise. Uh, yeah, it is a franchise film, definitely, uh, and it kind of hits many of the same beats that the first two Terminator films did, but I think it does it in a really interesting and different way and allows for the presence of women and the strength of women and the, the fact that, you know, several people have said this, that really Sarah Connor is the interesting figure in the first two Terminator films. It's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's not, you know, it's certainly not... Um, what's his name, Kyle Reese. It's not even really John Connor. The focus is on her and is on her strength and her love for her child and her desire to save humanity. And this film expands upon that and takes it in a very different direction that I really liked. So I think it's a very enjoyable film. It's not doing great at the box office, but please go see it. It's loads of fun. Like, at the very least, you get to see Linda Hamilton and Arnold Schwarzenegger blow shit up, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and who can say no to that exactly i actually was thinking about trying to go see it tonight so yeah. it's worth it it's a fun action movie like when you come down to it it you're gonna have a good time cool uh so did you want to talk about last christmas i do want to talk about last christmas right. because you know what i really liked last christmas and <laughs> everyone's shitting on it and you know what i totally understand why they don't love it but i love it So, of course, as soon as the trailer came out a couple months ago, everyone immediately drew a conclusion about what was going to happen and that there was this big twist and I'm not going to talk about that. But what I will say is that this is a movie that people go into with specific expectations. And when you bill a movie as a romantic comedy, you're going to expect it to be very romantic and very funny. And... I think that the tone on this one is a lot different than I expected. And once I kind of settled in for that, I was just like, yeah, I really appreciated what was going on. Um, I mean, Henry Golding is charming as hell. (laughs) And of course he is. And he comes across his character is very much this like perfect man. That's too good to be true. And, um, and it's interesting because I actually really like Amelia Clark. I don't think that most of her film roles have su- suited her very well. And I don't think that they've usually used her very well. But um, I, I liked her. I liked her in this. I liked her performance in this. Even when her character is doing stuff that you're like, oh my gosh, woman, you need to stop. And But there's still just something so likable and you really want to cheer for her. And you really want her to just turn things around. And so watching the two of them together, it should be like, wow, I'm super rooting for this couple. And I never got that sense, maybe because I had an expectation of where it was going. And so I was braced for that. But but it's interesting because I didn't find it very romantic. And it's a lot more serious than I was expecting. It's, I would definitely still say it's a comedy, but... It's really more about um, someone who's been through something very traumatic and 
feels totally alone in the world and doesn't have anyone that she can turn to that can possibly understand what she's been through. And how do you navigate that? And so I think, I think what really resonated with me is this person who is in a way a victim. She's a victim of, of a very scary health situation and some circumstances that have resulted in that. And she doesn't know how to navigate that and how to get herself even after she's physically healed, she doesn't know how to get herself mentally healed. And so I think it's really beautiful. And I I really liked it. I, I think that you need to go into it understanding that the marketing on this is a little bit off. It make they show pretty much the funniest scenes in the trailer. And that's too bad because I think that that doesn't really give you a sense of what you're really going in for. I will say too, though, Emma Thompson has one of the funniest lines of the year and I'm not going to give away what it is because it's just the way she says it is so (laughs) unexpected that it's hilarious. It's kind of like, it's kind of like in, um, oh shoot. What was that movie Kamel Nanjiani did with his wife? Um, Oh, uh, the big sick. Yes. The big sick. It's kind of like the joke where he talks about like his, uh, nine 11 joke. Uh Where it's just so like, what? <laughs> you can't joke about that, but it's really funny. So Emma Thompson has something like that in this movie that's just hilarious and unexpected. And I love it. And Michelle Yeoh is great. And she has this weird romance with this customer. And it would be like, if it was not Michelle Yeoh, it would be kind of probably a little bit creepy. But it's just so charming and cute. And it's like, I wanted to know more about that. I wanted to follow them out of the door. You know, <laughs> I wanted to see more of them. So, Yeah. I liked it. It's not a perfect movie. I gave it a three out of four on award circuit, but, um, but I do think that it's, I think that the problem that people have had with it, especially has been just the expectations. I think Mm -hmm. it's not the movie that you go in thinking it's going to be, which we've seen that from Paul Feig a few times. And I, I think that, I mean, this is definitely different from anything he's ever done. And I, uh, you know, you want to talk about people trying new things and taking risks. I think that's what he's doing here. So, I mean, yeah. I, I want to see it, you know, I love Paul Feig. I like the cast, so I am, I'm more than willing to go along with it. And I'm glad to hear that he's trying different things that he's actually doing something different. I feel like all of his films are mismarketed. Yeah, like, I have yeah, never, I think so too. So many of his films prove to be more interesting than what their marketing actually says they are. So it was certainly true for Ghostbusters. It was definitely it was really true for Spy, uh, which mm-hmm. I avoided watching for years because I thought that I knew what it was, and then I actually saw it. I was like, oh, this is exactly the opposite of what I thought it was. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I think the only one that was well marketed was probably Bridesmaids. Um, mm-hmm. So good. I'm glad to hear that you liked it, and and I hope I get to go see it soon. Yeah, I hope you do too. So that is going to close us out. Thank you so much for listening to us this week, everybody. Uh, as always, you can get in touch with us a multitude of ways. We are on Twitter at Citizen Dame Pod. We are still on Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. We're kind of on Facebook, facebook.com slash citizendame. You can send us emails. Um, that's at citizendamepod at gmail.com. Of course, you can always go onto our website. Uh, we continue to put up reviews, editorials, um, 
interesting things that we're thinking about and talking about and engaging with. We are very well educated film critics. Uh, so we do actually know what we're saying. Uh, that's citizendamepod.com. And of course, if you want to give us some of your money and get some cool stuff as a result, you can uh, contribute to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash citizendame. Uh, we really do appreciate all of our patrons. Thank you guys for, for continuing to contribute and to support us and um, keeping the lights on, keeping us hosted and everything. It's really, really wonderful. And so like, thank you all so much. Uh, we do have a Zazzle store at zazzle.com slash citizen dame and uh, there have been some new buttons and stickers and stuff like that being put up. I'm going to put up a few more within the coming weeks because I happen to like buttons a lot so I like putting things on buttons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> buttons are fun. Yes, buttons are fun and so you can you can buy some things from there and uh, and give us some support and we also have a ko-fi that's ko-fi dot com slash citizen dame and of course you can always get in touch with us via twitter uh karen where are you i am at karen m peterson and i am at lh business so that will close us out for this week thank you all for listening bye um i'm finding that over the years um the scenes that stay with me are the, the seemingly quieter scenes the scenes where things where it appears that not much is happening with the hitchcock film uh, and it's all happening there in him, the obsession of following her everywhere she goes with that car. That's a beautiful sequence. And of course, Bernard Herrmann's music doesn't hurt it. <laughs>